Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. My guest today is my old friend, Dr. Vasilios Vasios, who is a senior researcher at the Physics of Complex Systems Department of the University of Brussels where he conducts interdisciplinary research on self-organization and emergence in complex matter, as well as aspects of the foundations of complex systems. We first met in the early 1990s in Greece, where a number of pioneering meetings on a science of consciousness were arranged by his mentor and our mutual friend, Emilios Buratinos, author of the seminal work, Science, Objectivity and Consciousness. During his formative years, Vasily worked with the team of Elia Prigogine, a Nobel laureate and honorary member of the Scientific and Medical Network, at the Solvay Institutes for Physics and Chemistry in Brussels. He's interested in the history of ideas in science and their role in the transformation of science beyond the prevailing mechanistic worldview. He's also a board member of the Scientific and Medical Network and is interested in contemporary research avenues that might start to lead to a new renaissance and the emergence of a re-enchanted nature. He's also a member of the steering group of the Galileo Commission. Vasily, welcome to Imaginal Inspirations. Hello, David. Um, And it's very nice to see you with your cat in Brussels. So we're going to start with talking about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Can you tell us about that? Yes, and I, 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 it, it was very early. I mean, physics hit me when I was at elementary school, and I, I had this uncle who was um, an elementary school teacher and director of, of, I mean, he had his own school, and he had one of these classic experiments where you had roads, and for for heating up little metal sticks. So he hit up a little metal stick and miraculously it expanded. So for me, everything was real. My uncle, my the, the, the light, the, the metal was all real, but the expansion was like us coming from a dream. It was like a shattering of my matrix. I never thought about that. I never seen never such a thing in my life. So I was like, oh, what is this? And then he explained to me that this is physics. And if I'm a good boy, I can understand everything of this strange phenomena. But for me, it was a dreamlike state at the moment. I couldn't understand why this road was expanding so fast without nobody touching it. And then um, again, I remember that as a dream and also sometimes falling again in this dream state in Euclidean geometry at school, where then I decided that I have to learn mathematics and geometry because it was another uh, as if a totally different world was appearing behind the blackboard. So that, that was the decisive childhood traumas. <laughs> that yes, me... how interesting. So that kind of set you on, on your path. Kind um, of, yeah. yeah in, that, in that sense. So your, your uncle was one of your, your mentors. Is he the most influential mentor or do you have other mentors you'd like to mention? And, and what advice did they give you that helped you along your way? I, I would say my my uncle, my father, uh, of course, uh, and, and teachers at school, but the most influential mentors that really changed my life came in, in, in uh, when I was about 28 or so, where I had a major crisis with physics that I, I had devoted myself and I tried to be an excellent student and, and I, I was an excellent student and, and I was 
you know, that was my bubble. I was happy and, 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 and the king in my own bubble, and that bubble got uh, scattered around the age of 28. Being in a competitive environment with other graduate students, so they were all fighting for the next Nobel Prize, and, and, uh, it's, it's so, and also the prevailing mechanistic attitude in, in physics, where it, it could not allow me to accommodate all my other philosophical uh, inspirations and aspirations. So there I met, uh, I, I, I was kind of um, shattered and broke and depressed. And then I met a, a lady, Fotini Apostolopoulou. She was also part of this early conference in Athens. She is a yoga teacher and she put me together. She learned, okay. she, she taught me how to breathe, how to relax, how, how to eat, how to move, <laughs> and little by little. And then she introduced me to Emilius. And I would say that Emilius was my my intellectual father and mentor and psychologically also he, he closed the gap of my father who had departed at when I was uh, 15, which was another kind of decisive moment in, in, in metaphysical questioning, losing my father around 14 or 15. And tell us a bit more about Emilios because you know, our listeners won't be that familiar with him or his work. Oh, yeah. Well, Emilius is um, is a Buddha in suburbia. He lives in. Uh, remember this book. He he, he lives in uh, in Athens, in outside of uh, Athens in a Cali, in a magical garden, and uh, he has a, a, a very interesting uh, life himself. He he started uh, as a, as an avid um, Thomist from the Catholic tradition. Thomas Aquinas, and he had he was doing all the Catholic exercises and everything at his in his place. Although Greece is a predominantly Orthodox country, anyway, he was following this ascetic. But then, at the moment in his life, he changed. He 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 was introduced to the Vipassana meditation, and there he he started becoming one of the influential people of the Buddhist cycles in Greece. Dalai Lama would, would come and visit him in his garden. Monks from Mount Athos will come and visit him in his garden. So whenever you go, to, I was going to to, to Emilio's house. He was a, another peculiar character, <laughs> dressed in a funny way, talking about spiritual things with him. So it was a, it was for me it was like a magical place. I mean, I, I, you he, you could talk from philosophy. He was a student of Heidegger, by the way. Oh yes, uh, yes, and he also had studied uh, non-Boolean logic, non-Aristotelian logic early in the 60s, which was something very, very, very strange. I mean, now we are learning about quantum logic. They have learned, I mean, in Austria, in his book, because of Heidegger and his influence about uh, non-Aristotelian logic in the, in the 60s. So anyway, so there were all this decor, etiquette, and, and, and kind of um, atmosphere that it was totally out of any norm. And for me, it was a it was a bit of fresh air. I learned, I learned, I learned. I he he taught me vipassana. So, and he introduced me also to to you and the scientific and medical network. So, yeah, he was big, the most big, big part of your life. And can you yeah. can you remember any piece of advice that was important that that Emilios gave you, or was it just more generally you know, being in his presence and, and and the long conversations you you must have had on many occasions. The long which I've also taken part in, of course. Yes, and, and, and also something which it was very kind of more in his personal life also. He, he had a, a very playful, but not uncompassionate. He, it was a playful of compassion. 
and he was always say, aren't we here to play? Why bother and why waste time in, in, in crying over and, and, and hate and fear? Life is a game and the only thing that we have to take care is not to hurt each other while playing. Yes, well, that's very nice insight. And tell us a little bit about working with Elia Prigogine in his group. Oh, yeah, oh, well, that, that's another great major influence in my life because at that moment that I had this breakdown, there was a mentor, well, mentor, a, a teacher, who was and is a big guy, a big shot in chaos and complexity theory. And at that time, he was a postdoc, and um, now he's very big. I mean, big in name and in age also. So he's, he, he told me, look, what you are looking for, it's not here. It's not in America. It's nowhere else than Brussels or Patras. There are two brothers, Gregor Nicolis in, uh, in Brussels and John Nicolis in Patras. They're, they're doing what you, what you do. So go there and checking out the bibliography, I saw Nicolis' work, both Nicolis' work, that they're always referring to this big, big, big guy. Brigosin until I uh, and I, I I was fascinated by his book Order Out of Chaos. It became like a, like a Bible to me. I was reading all the time. Uh, I wanted to work with this group. I approached the the brother because he was doing cybernetics, and I want, always wanted to know about cybernetics. That was the old school of of cybernetics, artificial intelligence, and all this hype that goes on. In the 60s, cybernetics was very strong, and and he was one of the major innovative and creative minds. Anyway, it happens that, 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 that John Nicholas told me, I'm not good for working with groups. Go to my brother, Gregoire. There is a guy there who has some money from a Russian project, and he might accommodate you. So off I went, and I met the big guy, who was really bigger than life. I mean, although short in appearance, like Napoleon kind of thing. Yeah, he would radiate a kind of um, awe, and also other people will will take him very seriously. And I was happy to be the second generation. So you had this big Nobel Prize winner, reformer of physics, and good friend of the king and and everybody else. And then you had his bishops, which were trying to protect him and trying to kind of you know. Take out, take some of his shine and glory, and then we had us, the the little graduate students, which were we were like uh, little minions or slave boys, you know, so, <laughs> to, to to do the work and write the papers, and all that. So, but he was very good with us. I mean, he was playing with us, and he was kind of like a grandfather grandchild relationship. He would drop all his re resistances, and he would open. I remember he he gave me a book about Giordano Bruno. Really. Yeah, and uh, Tarna's book. And he said, don't say that to this and this and this guy. They are very conservative. They might take okay. the wrong idea. <laughs> so, like, like, you know, like, so he's, what I, what I admire uh, with him and Gregor Nicolis, because they were also, I mean, he's at the same level, is, is that they will never attack the problem at the same level that they would encounter. They would always raise a level as if they would go on a, hilltop or, or something and, and see above the problem. So they would get the whole strategic view, why this problem appears, what are the conditions, what are the problems that arise as we approach this problem from this path and not from the other path. So this global, I would say strategic overview of dealing with research problems, it was something unique and I've very rarely met again 
in other groups or in other research activities. Usually they have one way, one way to go, and, and they, they go this way until they hit rock bottom or a wall, and they have to turn. But with these guys, they had the overview of their subject, and they could employ the tools necessary for each step. So it's like a kind of complex systems overview because you're you're thinking about exactly. the, interlink, the interlinking parts and how things relate to each other rather than just looking at it in a more linear fashion. Exactly. And then did he did he ever play the piano in the lab or did he not have a lab a piano in that particular lab? I know he had one in Texas. Oh no, yeah. That, that, interestingly enough, I, I hope they they don't. Uh hear this in, in my administration in the university. <laughs> but the ULB as an administration did not support Nobel winning research, unfortunately. I mean, Brigusin had a kind of grunge with uh, the administrator, administration, and he went to Texas in order to, to, to tease them out and give him the position that they, he wanted. And in Texas, in Texas, it's a story where he he was very, very welcome. He, he, he gave all his lectures. Everybody wanted to get him there. And he said, no, half and half, because he loved you a bit. He had all, all kinds of other obligations. And he said, no, I can in, be involved part-time. And, and one of the conditions is that I would have a, a, a big grand piano next to my office, which, because in Texas, the, the, the rector was very keen to music, uh, he immediately provided but in ULB I mean in, in the University of Brussels no 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 piano well no. I remember him saying that he he'd learned to read music practically before he could read words yes that, that's true I am a little dyslexic with symbols and sometimes on the blackboard I will, I will put in the wrong symbol and then erase it immediately and uh, when he or again Nicholas the same but he was not dyslexic he was much more complex you know, focused, but but we could say, oh yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. I mean, you have this symbol, but let's see that this is the others. I mean, if it's psi, no, no, this is raw. Okay. <laughs> so so, he, so was, uh, he had this kind of flexibility of of. Uh, I mean, the, the details will come later. Yes, indeed. Uh, just going going back to books, you you mentioned um, Richard Tarnas's uh, Passion of the Western Mind, mm. I think, and, and also Order Out of Chaos. Are there any other books that, that were really formative at that time? At that time, not really. At that time, I was... I was and Bruno, of course. Bruno, of course, yes. But it, this, this uh, kind of lines of, of, of philosophical investigations came earlier in my life when I was, again, at the time of 14, 15. And I think that one of my beloved books is Jonathan Livingston Siegel by Richard oh, yes. Bach. Yes. Mm. So that, that shaped my soul, so to speak, at that time. Uh, maybe maybe 13, early Boy Scout. I don't remember, but I, I remember it was in the Boy Scout troops that, that it was going around. And I it, I didn't have any, I didn't even have a copy. It was a copy of my friend in Boy Scout. And I, I still have it. I never can. <laughs> I never, never gave it back. Gave it back. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, my, that's my little, little kind of... Uh, and then what about a key moment in your, your work, a key moment of insight, um, maybe also in relation to your study of consciousness? Does, that, does anything stand out there? Other than the general aha or awe moments that I had, you know, studying non-Euclidean geometry or, or even, even standard mathematics and things that, that they were at school, you know, my mind would, would go bloom and go to the platonic realm for a second and then come back and say, 
what was that. Okay. Uh, but other than that, I had a kind of revelation reading Kessler's The Sleepwalkers, where I met uh, Galileo, Bruno, Kepler, and Ned Newton as characters. There, I remember that it was a, at the moment that I had this crisis about the mechanistic worldview. We went out with students, we had drinks, and at that time, it was, the, the, the library would stay 24 hours a day, open. And uh, it was 11 or 12 o'clock in the night, and I just couldn't sleep because I couldn't get my, my, my point across that what we're doing here is just calculating and we're not, we're not dealing with uh, the real physics problems. So the, the discussion in the, in the bar went about Gedder and Winkenstein and all that, and, I, and nobody, everybody else got it, in my view, wrong. So I, fe I felt alone and, and just upset with everybody, and I wanted to go back to the library. I got this book about astronomy and how people change their ideas. Excellent book, Sleepwalkers. And then I remember, the next thing I remember is that uh, the, the sun has dawned. It was 8 o'clock and I had to go to classes. And I was not feeling tired at all. And I didn't finish the book. It was three-fourths of the book. I haven't finished, finished the book. It was just something happened. And I was like, I was not, I was not sleeping. I went somewhere else. <laughs> and the, 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 the light of these pioneers somehow kept me through the night. And then I went directly to the class at eight o'clock, having spent the night in the library and, and uh, under this influence uh, of, of communicating with, with Kessler, I guess, and Bruno and Galileo and what it's all about. And then uh, another peculiar moment of illumination that came to me was when later, like 20 years ago, when my mother passed away, she had some of her, of her favorite books, and one of them is of, of St. Basil, Vasilius is the, the Greek name for Basil. Okay. And he was talking, he was a little, a little book about the, living the life of a good Christian, and uh, I, I knew that she had this kind of books, and she was a, a good Christian anyway, and um, so I took that, and then I realized that I have read that as a little guy, as a little boy, because I had drawn on that little Mickey Mouses and little ah, cartoons. Your cartoons. Yes. So she kept it not because she has an interest in, in light and angels and fundamental beings, <laughs> but because I had my cartoons, you know. So it was kind of a, a, a moving moment. And at that time, I, I decided I read it again. And I realized that everything that we almost, almost everything <laughs> that we know about light in a philosophical sense, it's written there. Oh, about, about, about the light, which is called the structure and unstructured light, the light of the spirit and the light of the... So all the Gnostic kind of Pythagorean approaches to light, it, it was... It, it's, what were, what were his dates, um, Vasily? That was very early Christian day, third century. Okay. Yeah, the fathers of the church. So they, they, they built the, the, the dogma. He was a Neoplatonist guy. The other two guys were more fanatic. That was another kind of illumination because I, I, I flashed back in my early self reading this book and I said, ah, okay. <laughs> it's a kind of opening and, and connection. No, that's, that's very, very interesting. And then moving on, how, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? Or Oh, yeah, well, uh, I, I would say that it was a horrible, I mean, judging by myself, yeah, in, a, in a life review, I would say that I was kind of a horrible, egoistic guy and kind of almost autistic. I thought that I, I had all the, the right answers and 
after I have met the medias and, and starting doing Vipassana, I saw myself how I was and I didn't like it. And little by little, gradually, it has changed, I hope. <laughs> but at least from, from, my, from inside, from how I see the world, I think I, I take better care of myself, of my family, of the neighbor. I cannot say that I love the neighbor as I love myself, but still, I don't, I don't hate him <laughs> as, as I hate myself. <laughs> so it's a kind of uh, understanding that we are all instances of a, of a kind of human condition that you are touching with the meditation thing. Then I understood the golden rule. What does it mean in both versions, in the negative and the positive? The silver rule is the negative one. Yes. So it's both of them are, are so, so important. And the other kind of byproduct that came from studying and reading and, and, and meditating about consciousness is that uh, finally you, you give up with the, with the fear of death. So that's an, important, that's an important insight, obviously. Yeah, it's not relevant anymore. I mean, it's there, of course, but it's there as in uh, as many other things in life that, that you, might, you, you might agree or not are there, but it's not really important. And do, do you see um, consciousness as fundamentally one in, in, in a similar way to Max Planck and, and Schrodinger? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. This is, um, I mean, coming from the point of view of physics, there's no, no such a thing like consciousness. Whatever is fundamental in physics is there to stay, to be measured, and by whom? By consciousness. So there you have the, 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 the snake biting its own tail. Consciousness has yeah. to be there in the first place. There's no way that mechanical world can give rise to an intelligent consciousness, life-giving and life-living, whatever, uh, universe, uh, if, if it was not already there in the beginning. So it, it, for me, it's yes, there's a very subtle distinction between what we call consciousness and unconscious mind. So Consciousness does not mean that it's a realized consciousness. A rock has a consciousness, but it's a rock consciousness. It's the, the, his configuration, the, 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 the way things are there, energetic, material, whatever you name it, they are not sustaining the same kind of consciousness like a human no, being, clearly. an animal. But it, it's dormant. And I think the whole the whole story, the whole saga of the universe is, is that the rock becomes conscious also and partakes into the conscious of light. But this is my own. Uh, that's a big, big subject. We can't go into that. Yeah, in yeah. Detail. But okay. but definitely, yeah. As Gödel said, mind is a brain driven by spirit. Ah, what's beautiful. So, <laughs> Beautiful. In fact, that was my, going to be my next question. That's obviously not something to live by, but do you have a proverb uh, or saying ah, yeah. you live by or that you, is important to you? Yes. One is my, uh, the kind of hermetic teaching of, 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 of Bruno, of Giordano Bruno, which says a, a single force, love, links and gives life to infinite worlds. Mm. For me... Can you just repeat that? It's so, so, so important. A single force, love, links and gives life to infinite words. Now, because uh, we both like uh, books, uh, I, many people dispute the, the, that Giordano Bruno said that, but it's even if he didn't say that, 
it is written there in long verses in a poem about the cause and unity where he talks about the monads. And uh, the only justification for the Pythagorean monads for him is love and feeling good. And there's no feeling good without love, and there's no love without feeling good. Well, that's a, so, that's a lovely uh, you know, remark to, to ponder on. So and even if it's paraphrasing, I, I go for it. <laughs> my, my, my final question is, is, do you have any advice you might give your younger self hmm. from where you are now? That's kind of a, a difficult one because it's like a, re a review of life, as you say. Yes, I would say not to be afraid. And no, ma no matter what burden you, you are carrying or you think you are carrying, never, never lose your step. That I would advise my... I mean, I have lost my step in my youth many times. Sometimes for burdens and sometimes for, for, for just fun <laughs> but it was a, it was a, behind all this uh, crazy behavior it would it would be a fear and fear is the lack of love and if i would go back i would say to myself don't worry the all of friends or foes are all teachers that they are teaching you something so accept their what they have to say and and don't be afraid well Vasily, thank you so much. I think that's excellent advice for anyone, um, whether it's oneself or other people. And, and we, we live in a world where there's too much fear and arguably not enough love. So we'll leave it there. And thank you very much indeed for joining Imaginal Inspirations. Well, thank you for taking me aboard. <laughs>